Thanks for listening to the River in the Hills weekly sermon. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Nate Cashdan. For more about this podcast and other resources, visit our website at www.riverinthehills.com. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Thank you. Um, turn your Bibles to Second uh, Samuel, if you would. We'll get there in a sec. You'll know where it's at. It's right after 1 Samuel, so you, you'll get it. It's on page 254. Have I worn that one out? A little bit. Hey, I'm um, excited about the, the message today. Um, I guess it'd be weird if I got up and I was like, oh, I'm pretty apprehensive about the message today. And you guys would be like, oh, that sucks. Um, but... Yeah, the, look at the title. Isn't it funny? It has nothing to do with the message. <laughs> Absolutely nothing to do with the message. I'm sitting in my office this week, and I'm like, oh, I want to get the, all the guys something for Father's Day in the church. And I'm like kind of blank because we got the girl, the ladies all got cookies, right? Remember I ate it in front of you? They were super good. And, um, but I was like, I'm not going to hand the guys a cookie with a big pink heart on it that says love and then happy Father's Day, you know? It's like, that's dumb. So uh, I'm like, I go to the internet, and I'm like, hey, what are churches giving fathers? And uh, it, the first thing I click on, it's like, what about a really nice bookmark? I was like, well, that's about the most feminine thing I've heard. I'm like, okay. I go to the next thing. It's like, what about a keychain? I'm like, all right. I look at the next thing. I click on the next thing. It goes, why don't you, why don't you give them all a, a notepad so they can journal? I said, these were obviously written by women. <laughs> and I started to get really mad. I said, I'm going to give them like a bullet or bacon or gut or beef or something. I said that out loud at my desk. And then I was like, beef sticks. <laughs> that came to me. So happy Father's Day. Here, Chuck, Chuck, or Derek, you, what, you get the first one. See, he's not passive. We're going to talk about that. So you got the, the ushers will have a, a beef stick for all you men on the way out today. Beef stick. That was my nickname in high school too. So, no, no, I can't tell you my nickname. No, I'm just kidding. Second, hey, I got the message. No, I'm just kidding. Second uh, Samuel six. Yeah, thank you. Um, so just as I said on um, Mother's Day, if you're here, if not, you can go back and listen to it if you want. But uh, you know, it's important to note that. Having children is not what makes you a mother or a father. Now, now, I'm not trying to take away from the fact that having children is definitely the biggest part of being a mother and a father. And it's, I don't want to take away from the fact, like, to, I don't have to swing the pendulum to the other side to make a point. I'm just telling you that when the Lord in Genesis created man in his own image... He, Adam didn't have any kids when he was created in the image of God, and God is a father. So he created him in his image to be a father, right? He, yes, Nate, he did. And then he was the father of, you know, creation, or of uh, men, you know, uh, the, the first Adam. So in the same way, we talked on Mother's Day, I said, you know, when he cr- 
when he created Adam and no suitable helper was found for him, he created Eve. Eve and Adam together represented the full expression of the image of God in male and female. Well, in this, I, I talked a lot about how, hey, being, you know, having kids isn't what first made you a mother. It was God's creation of you. Well, it's the same thing for guys. Okay, so the reason I say that today is because, uh, you know, I want to honor the men in the room that uh, either don't have kids yet or don't have kids or, or you know, have them and want them wherever you're at. Um, I honor you as, uh, as your role as a spiritual father, as your role as a son first, because the best fathers are the best sons first. And I honor your role as future fathers, especially young men in the room. And I hope that you will find uh, strong men of God to have pour into you to help shape who you're becoming. All right? Um, sorry, let me mute all these alerts here. Okay. Um, we just finished a series, our men's group here, not just, like a couple months ago, just finished our series as a men's group here called The Quest for Authentic Manhood. Uh, a few of you were a part of that. We met on Tuesday mornings for like 26 weeks or something like that. It was really good. Uh, Jim Jack put the group together, um, but we actually watched a video series by Dr. Robert Lewis, and he's the one that did the teaching. It's, the teaching is a couple decades old. He's got a lot of material on it, but it's very good. Um, he defines manhood biblically. So Dr. Lewis basically works through all this scripture, and the idea is to come up with a biblical definition of manhood. And he does that with four parts. And those four parts are a biblical man uh, rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects the greater reward of God's reward. Okay, and I we worked many, many, many weeks to get to that definition, and I I really fully agree with Dr. Lewis's uh, kind of his estimation of the biblical definition of manhood. Uh, now you, you can't look at that and be like, "There's so much more to it." Well, yeah, there was 26 weeks more to it. That, that's what that was. That was one page of a booklet that we came to, and and I, I thought that I thought that it really uh, kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, our culture. Well, let me just say this. I firmly believe that males are born and men are made. Okay? I believe and and I be, and I also believe that children are born male or female. Yeah. But um and again, as I said on Mother's Day, if you need help with the definition of that, I can totally define it. I'm highly qualified. Um but we the because because that's true, because males are born and men are made. Men become made in, they kind of become the product of the environment that they're made in, okay? And our culture is not in the men-making business. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Let me tell you this. When my son was in public school, he's homeschooled now. This is not why he's homeschooled, but, but the story I'm about to tell you. But he got, he got written up one day. He's five years old. He got written up one day. Uh, for making a finger gun and pretending to shoot laser beams in PE class with another student. Pew, 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 like that. He got written up. I took the thing and tore it up in front of him. I said, you're a man. Make laser beams. And, uh, and then, I, and then, and then I, I basically told the, the teacher, whoever it was, the administrator, this is ridiculous. If there's a further problem, I'll take it over your head. And then... Same school year, on the last day of school, same administrators 
handed a water pistol in the shape of a 1911 to every student. Same teach. Yeah, I'd like to think that, Kevin. <laughs> I would like to think that I helped them, but I don't think I did. I think that the masculinity that they saw in my son scared them. I read a story around the same time of a kid that got suspended from school for eating his Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun. You want to know why he did it? He's a boy. Hand any child a stick. Oh, no, hand any boy a stick. Hand any boy a stick, it's a sword or a gun in less than five seconds. You don't have to teach them. They will turn it into a weapon. And if you, and, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, from the age that they can hold a stick, it is a weapon. You hand a girl a stick, what are they doing with it? Twirling it, drawing on the ground with it, using it to fly or something like that. These things are put in your DNA. And culture, and we're not talking, I'm focusing on the men this morning, and women, you, the reason you need to listen to this is because you need to know how to pray for your spouse, you need to know how to help raise your boys, and you need to know what to look for in your future husband. Okay? So, I'm going to step off my soapbox and get back to the notes, which were also written on my soapbox, so it, it doesn't, no, I'm just kidding. We need, <laughs> the point is, if culture's not going to make these men into biblical men, then it's really the responsibility. It's going to happen in the home, and it's going to happen in the church. And unfortunately, much of the church has been heavily influenced by culture and the way that we bring up our children. We need real men, real husbands, real fathers. We need husbands that reject passivity in every area of their life and their family's life. you got to reject passivity as a leader of your family. Um, the man who rejects passivity doesn't sit around, uh, you know, just kind of live life removed from their wife and their kids, just let their kids, you know, well, whatever, they're just going to play video games and do whatever they want. I'm going to do my thing. Let your wife, you know, kind of walk around and be the spiritual leader of your house because you don't have what it takes to step up and do it. We, we can't have that anymore. We need fathers who accept responsibility and re who really own it when they're wrong and mess up and apologize to their kids when they yell at them and apologize to their kids when they speak disrespectfully to their wife in front of them. You see, if, if more is caught than taught, and more is caught than taught when you're a child, they are going to mimic behaviors and words that they see in the house. They do. And if you speak to your wife disrespectfully, they will speak to women disrespectfully. And if they hear you punish them for speaking to women disrespectfully and then turn around and you speak to your own wife disrespectfully, you will teach them that it's okay to behave one way at home and another way outside of the home. So we need fathers who are willing to accept responsibility. We need, to we need men who will lead courageously. There's cowards everywhere. There's no shortage of them. But we can be men of courage. We really can. If you have a history of being more cowardly, that can change. It's not your destiny. 
thank God he doesn't, he doesn't judge us based on our history. He judges us based on our destiny and who he's called us to be. We can be men who are unafraid, who really walk in the fear of the Lord. I know that, sound, that might sound like a, well, you just said unafraid and they're going to walk in fear. No, that's the only fear that you should walk in, is the fear of the Lord. No fear of man. No fear of COVID. The church needs real men. Would you put up the meme real quick, Sloan? We'll carry on here. You guys see that? If you can't see it, I mean, you can laugh. It's okay. But the top here says it's a picture of the beach at Normandy on D-Day, June 6th, 1944. It says Americans in 1944 facing almost certain death. Do you know the average age? About 22 years old. And then you saw a lot of that. I still see this. It's pathetic. I first saw that like a year ago, and it just, it it stuck with me. I actually looked for it this week, found it online, and because it stuck with me, I thought, oh, how things have changed. We don't need more sissy soft males. I can't make apologies for calling men higher into the things of the Lord. We're going to look today at three aspects um, of the life of David that I believe that we can, uh, or three attributes of the life of David that I believe every man in this room can get to and should work for. I mean, you could do this with a lot of different men in Scripture, namely Jesus, and we have. But I really want the Lord put on my heart to talk about David, and I'm going to do that. But... uh, I believe that the Lord's desire, when I read Genesis through Revelation, I believe that he wants his sons to be real men. Not everybody's the same, okay? Don't, there's been too much of a, a shift the other direction with, with masculinity, meaning when the feminism movement started all those decades ago, the, uh, whether or not the women who led that and the men who helped lead it as well, whether or not their goal was to truly, you know, bring women out of a lesser place in society and place them into their godly role, which I believe would have been a very good thing. To, like that, that needed to happen. But what the devil wanted to do was, was actually what uh, has been going on since the garden, and that is her desire will be for her husband, meaning she wants his job. He wanted to wipe out men and because without strong men and strong leaders, there's no strength in the church. There's no strength in the world. That's just true. And so what, what happened was we started to get these ideas where people were like, people were like, you need to be a real man. But not like, you know, not like a macho man, like, like the world tries to say is a real man. And I'm like, okay, like I, hear, like I hear that. I've probably said that. Like I get it. But 
what are we actually saying when we're telling a man, hey, you're, being macho is not what makes you a man? Well, it's definitely part of it. It's definitely part of it. Like, it, it, like it, you know, if you say it enough, you're actually going to cause men to desire to be feminine because they're going to be shameful about being masculine and the things that they attach to it. Does that make sense? Does it make sense that I understand that being all jacked and talking in a deep voice and stoic, and that's not what makes you a man. I get that. I get that. But some of the manliest men I know are jacked, deep-voiced, stoic dudes. Thanks, Kevin. Dude, you're right on cue today. Two beef sticks for Kevin on the way out. So I don't want to separate the two things completely. And as we're going to see in the life of David, they didn't have to be separate. We've got to be real careful when we're teaching our sons, our young men, what manhood is. You have these biblical definitions of manhood and these biblical models that we look at, but oftentimes we are actually just trying to correct a behavior in them that we don't like. And so we'll tell them a generality about what they're doing, like, oh, that's always wrong, or oh, that's always right, okay? Like, for instance, when they're, when they're out hitting people with sticks, we can correct a behavior there without crushing the desire that they have to be warriors. If you start telling your son, hey, we don't, we, hey, violence is always wrong. No, it's not. Violence is not always wrong. It's not. Violence solves problems. Oftentimes it's wrong. And with the wrong heart, it's wrong. And with the wrong motivation, it can be wrong. But several places in Scripture, God calls people to violence. Now y'all, now y'all mad. <laughs> it's okay. I can take it. Um... All right, I don't want to belabor the point. You get it. All right, life of David. Um, I'm going to read. We'll be in First Samuel or in Second Samuel six in just a sec. But I'm going to read from First Samuel chapter seventeen. The first attribute of David's life um, is that David was a fierce warrior. Do you know David? <clears throat> we know he slayed Goliath. He was probably about fifteen years old when he did it. How many of you have a 15-year-old kid or around 15 years old? Let me just, how many of you were 15 at one point? Yeah, most of you. Um, imagine your 15-year-old. It's not just that he slayed Goliath. He's bringing him cheese and crackers, right? He's got the charcuterie, which all the way, I mean, already, David's like, he's a chef, right? He's like, knows how to do nice things. He brings the spread out to his brothers. He's like, what are you doing here? And then he steps in. He's like, why are you letting this Philistine define the army of God in the name of God? And they're like, what are you talking about? He goes up to Saul, which right there, there's a sermon. David approaches Saul. <laughs> Who was he? wasn't even supposed to be there. Who was he to, to talk to Saul? And he basically says, yeah, I'll fight him. And Saul lets him, which is just, anyways, a thousand. It's like, what? Saul puts his armor on him, and David's like, yeah, it doesn't fit. And he takes it off, runs out there, just slings a stone right at him, knocks him over, pulls out his own sword, cuts his head off. And then at 15 years old, he carries his head back to town. I did that. 
And he goes, and he, and he basically does it as a way to say, don't let these Philistines dishonor the name of God. And he holds up his blood. This is, this is not on flannel graphs when you're in Sunday school, okay? This didn't make the PowerPoint. People, people are like, yeah, David took down the Goliath with a sling and a stone. And it's like, oh, and he fell over dead. No, he violently chopped off his head and marched it back into town with stuff hanging out of it. I'm serious. This is true. But before that, listen, 15 years old. Do you know that one of the reasons why Saul let David do that is because David walked up and he goes, I've killed a bear and a lion as they were coming after my sheep. No guns back then. The Bible says that he struck them more than likely with either his rod, right, which shepherds had, or some sort of knife or something, but his hands were involved. He said he grabbed it by its hair and struck it. He'd killed a lion and a bear. That's pretty amazing at 15. It's amazing at 15 with a gun to have killed a lion or a bear, but with his hands. And Saul's like, well, <laughs> I haven't done that, so here you go. But the Philistine, so he's a fierce warrior. He kills lion and the bear. He kills the giant. We know later from the story, I'm not going to read it all, but uh, he and his mighty men go on to actually slay many more giants. Okay, that's where we get the saying, if you want to be a giant slayer, hang out with a giant slayer. Right? If you want to slay giants, hang out with a giant slayer. His men went on to do the very same things that he did because when you're following a guy that doesn't have fear, it's a lot easier to step into that realm of no fear yourself. Uh, he, uh, he destroyed countless, not just the Philistines, but countless enemy armies, enemies of God, where he would, as we're going to see in a minute with wisdom, he would step into the Lord's presence and say, should I go out and fight these people? And sometimes he'd be like, yeah, and sometimes he'd be like, no, and sometimes he'd be like, actually, I want you to go from behind. And then when you hear them start to get confused because I'm taking them out from the front, then you can ambush them from behind. And he's like, okay. So he gets all these ideas, but, but it's rough estimates. I did a lot of research on this. Rough estimates that David himself or like by, by his hand or his immediate, you know, where he was kind of on the battle is that he killed about 140,000 people. Okay, that's, that's one picture of David. Uh, then we go on, number two, is that David was a wise leader, okay? He was a fierce warrior, and he was a wise leader. Um, I just mentioned that he went before the Lord, uh, you know, asking what to do. But one of the things that, that will stand out in the life of David, especially as you read through 2 Samuel 17 or 2 Samuel verse 6, as we will hear in just a second, is, is that David was very humble, okay? And, hu and humility and wisdom are really great company, okay? And oftentimes the line, you know, the line between, um, the line between faith and foolishness is wisdom, Right? And David looked very faithful. Why? Because he was wise. Because he didn't let pride creep in when the Lord said, hey, I actually, uh, actually don't, you don't go out to battle right there. And he's like, what are you talking about? We just killed like 30,000 guys. No one can stop us. The Lord is on our side. He's got all the Christian knees, right? He's like, ah, thou art with me. And he's saying all these things. And the Lord's like, no, don't do it. And every time, you know, that the Lord, the Lord spoke in all these situations of battle and all these situations of leadership, even the fact that he was anointed so many years before Saul actually died and he becomes king, he waits patiently. 
that takes humility. The wisdom in his leadership was seen most often in the way that he humbled himself before the Lord and made decisions out of that humility. He made decisions out of honoring God. He was a very wise leader. He also knew the power of the presence of the Lord. He knew what it took to win the battles. He knew that it wasn't his like super gifted talent with his sling and his five rocks from getting the wolves. That you know, he, he was probably pretty good with his sling. You sling them at the wolves all the time, right? And they stay away from the sheep. But he also knew that it wasn't because he was so good that Goliath went down. He knew that it was because God was behind him. That takes wisdom. He had persuaded Saul to let him go into <laughs> to battle. That took wisdom. But he also would not stop until the presence of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, had a resting place. And he spent a lot of money, a lot of time, and lost some men making sure that it happened. He saw, he saw not just the benefit, but the necessity of the presence and power of God in everything that he did, and he went to great lengths to make sure that it was well taken care of. We don't have time to go into all that. Number three, the last one here is that David was a fiery worshiper. Listen to this. He's a fierce warrior. He's a wise leader, and he's a fiery worshiper. Think about that for a sec. In today's, we'll just say masculine culture, especially in the church, those three things don't go together. All right? You either have men that are viewed as a little more feminine because they're ecstatic and joyful and worship and they dance and they pray in the spirit and they smile and they get excited to be in the presence, or you have the guys that are like, I worship the Lord in my heart. <laughs> One or the other, right? That, and that's, that's kind of what we have. Not in David. Actually, I think that, I mean, this is not in, the, in Scripture, but I believe that if you were to grow up to David... Right? Actually, no, I'm going to say it. I'm just going to read this first. Here. 2 Samuel 6. There's a few. This is all in the same chapter here. Three different instances I'm going to read about. 2 Samuel 6, uh, verse 5. Okay, listen. They're bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. That's the scene. Okay? They went and got it. They're marching it back. And uh, 2 Samuel 6, verse 5 says, David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Go down to verse 14. Verse 14 says, David, wearing the linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Down to verse 20. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm going to read a little bit more here. Um... No, verse 20, when David returned home to bless his own household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, this is his wife, and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. She was sassy. Yeah, she, yeah, she could have done from a love and respect class. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. She's being sarcastic. Disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his, ser of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. Let me just try to put that into today's language. No. No, we can't do that. Verse 21, David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me 
rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. By these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Here's what happened. David is, this is the same guy that slayed tens of thousands at the least and hundreds of thousands at the most. Same guy that killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. Same guy that took out Goliath in front of the entire army of Israel and army of uh, or the Philistines. Same guy. Same guy that plays the harp before Saul. Same guy that writes songs. Same guy, um, this guy's all of a sudden, he, he's a king, he's a wise ruler, and he decides he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He's doing that, and what's happening is they're having a praise party, and they're getting wild before the Lord. And he takes off his royal robes, and he puts on priestly garments. There's like 10 sermons in there too. But he takes off his royal robes, that's what his wife was talking about. Okay, his wife's going like, you look like an idiot. Also, no one's going to honor you if you're not walking like a king. And he goes, woman, <laughs> that was not for you or for them. That was for my father. And they'll honor me. Don't worry about that. And, and, he, and he goes and he dances in a way that he describes as undignified because he says, I'll become even more undignified. Meaning what I was doing was undignified but you ain't seen nothing yet. And I promise you right now, men of God, look at me in this room. Dignity is not a fruit of the Spirit. It never has been. It never will be. In 2 Samuel 24, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it real quick. You can if you don't believe me that it's in there. If you want to check, it's okay. Um, 24, 24. So David is going. He's going to, I'm trying to set the scene here, but he's going to build an altar and he needs like a place to build the altar, and so he's going to buy a place where he can build the, al- the altar, and the guy hears what he's going to do, and he goes, no, 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 I'll just give it to you. You can have whatever. You just take it. And Second Samuel 24, 24, David says to this guy, Arunah, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Did you hear that? I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So he bought the threshing floor. Somebody had offered it to him for free, and he went, that's too easy. God's not honored if it doesn't cost me anything. The end of this story right here, there's a plague that Israel's going through. And he, he buys the altar, or he buys the, the land builds the altar, makes the sacrifice, and the Lord rescues them from the plague. And I put before you right now, this is a guess that's very educated, that I'll back up, that if he would have not purchased the land, but taken it for free and built the altar, I don't believe the plague would have been eradicated at that point. It's just a guess. I don't know that. He expressed his love and worship for the Lord in very public ways and in very private ways. He danced, he sang, he played the harp, he wrote psalms. He was passionate, emotional, and undignified. But he was also fierce.
I believe that there is, I believe that we're at this, this now time. I'm just, we're just going to use River in the Hills as our context because that's what we have, you know, reach in right now. But I believe that we have an opportunity right now to shift the manhood totally in our culture. To shift what it means, meaning we need to embrace a biblical definition of manhood, but we also need to step into biblical manhood as men. I have no problem calling men higher and being harder because I'm very hard on myself, and I ain't perfect. You can ask my wife. She's not going to tell you because she honors me, and she doesn't put my business in the street, which is great. She doesn't gossip about me behind my back to her friends, which is amazing. Which wives, don't do that. It doesn't help. Uh, but she could, she could, before the Lord, tell you that I'm not perfect. But I know that. But I look around the room, and I want, and I, I, some of the manliest men I know are in this room. <laughs> At least he's listening. <laughs> Seriously, some of the manliest men I know. I was looking in worship. I was looking over at Derek. I went and told him this. But I thought, I'm thinking of David, and I thought, Derek, and this is just one example. I know there's many more. But Derek's a guy that, I can, that, can, that has sat with me, cried with me, prayed in tongues with me, worshiped with me, interceded for me, danced around. We've all, and, but I also know that we could fight together. I also know that well, I, I know we, we have some similar stories of, of this being already proven, you know, in our younger years. But I also, I'm, I, would, I would, in a second, go to war with him because I know he'd have my back and I have his. And so I, that's, that's what I'm looking for, and I believe that's what the Lord is looking for. David didn't care what people thought about him. He cared what God thought about him. And I'm telling you, I believe we're at a point, I believe we're at a point where we can truly shift this just by starting small, because we don't despise small beginnings. Some of you do this really well, and some of you need to step it up, but I believe it can start here. Um, I think that at the end of your life, hopefully a long life, when you go to be with the Lord and you stand before him, he is not going to ask you about how successful you were in business. He is not going to ask you about how much respect you garnered from your it, people that worked for you. People, he's not going to ask you about how many times you were right. He's not going to ask you about how many times you were able to work a really good deal or get free food at a restaurant. Or he's not going to ask you about how many times you didn't watch porn when you could have. He's going to ask you if you learned to love. He's going to ask you if you learned to love him. He's going to ask you if you learned to love your wife. Sometimes I still, I get asked that, like, Lord, 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 Lord. He's like, uh-huh, that's all great. Do you love, did you love your wife well? I'm like, are you kidding? Like, ten people got saved. He's like, uh-huh, did you love your wife well? Did you love your kids well? Did you love your church well? Your friends, your family, your neighbors? Did you love yourself well? 
Those are the questions that we should be preparing to answer now. We can and should be fierce warriors. Man, I'm just telling you right now, it's been really nice to live in a sort of, you know, quasi-peacetime. But, but in, in the 40s, in the 60s, even in the early 2000s, we saw valor and courage that I don't see very much of today. I was going to talk about more of it, but I, 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 it'll take too long. I, I get choked up. We can and should be fierce warriors, but not at the expense of being fiery worshipers. We can and should be fiery worshipers, but not at the expense of being a fierce warrior. Worship team, you can come back up. Guys, my heart, you got to hear my heart. I know some of y'all are new here. I'm glad you're here. You got to know that my heart is to see a church experiencing revival. That's really what it boils down to. My heart is to see God's kingdom come on earth and be released on earth as it is in heaven. That's my heart. When I read scripture, I see a lot of things, but one of the things that I'm super passionate about is calling men to be men. Like, I don't, I'm just very, I'm very thankful. I understand that not all men have good fathers, therefore not all men have good examples. And that's hard. Many of you in this room have broken the mold in your own life where you didn't have a good father, but you went, no, I'm going to be a good father. And you did whatever it took to get healed from those wounds and step into true manhood. And that was not easy for you. And I commend you. I didn't have that. I had a good father. My my father's, my, my father didn't have a good father and he broke the mold. So I'm thankful for the courage of many of the men in this room who have broken the mold. Why don't you stand? Stay engaged here for a few more minutes. I've learned, I've learned a lot about manhood for many of you in the room. So thank you for that. I hope that you can learn something from me. Really, I hope that you can learn something from the Lord. Because I'll teach you a flawed version. I'll disappoint you and let you down at some point if I haven't already. But the Lord won't. I will make you unhappy at some point. I will. It's just a realistic expectation. You'll all let, everybody will let somebody down. But it's, it's really not about that. It's about being able to get over it. Men, there is a, there is a true grace from the Lord to lay down whatever whatever sense of worldly dignity 
has been keeping you from fully pursuing him. Whatever, whatever that, that lie is that you've been embracing that says that, that spiritual things or worship or prayer or those things are for your wife and not for you, whatever that is, I want, that, I want to see that torn down before you leave this morning because it doesn't do anyone any good, especially you. Whatever that voice is of shame every time you feel like you're going to press in and pour yourself out before the Lord just like David did, but there's some sort of embarrassment or fear of man, religious spirit, something there that stops you from doing that. I want to see that torn down. No performance, just authenticity. Lord Jesus, I pray right now. Start with me. Father, would you call us higher? I believe you are calling us higher. Would you give us, Lord, courage to lay down things we don't need, things that are hurting our families and hurting ourselves, and to not pick them back up when things get hard. Father, I, I speak against the spirit of passivity and irresponsibility cowardice Father God we need men that are fiery worshipers and fierce warriors and wise leaders humble men of God that will kneel before you and say God I don't know what to do but you know what to do I don't know where I'm going but you know where I'm going I don't know what I need but you know what I need humble men of God that will admit what they don't know Lord, I say before you, I don't know. Oftentimes, I have no idea what to do. And I don't want to pretend or make something up because I'm too prideful to ask for help. We want to vomit out pride this morning. Don't swallow it because it'll get regurgitated later. Just vomit it out. Purge it from your life. You don't need it. Women, you don't need it either. But men, you don't need it. Just repent and confess pride right now, just out of your own mouth. If it's something you, it's a sin. Pride is a sin. If you've been prideful, just repent. Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon. To download the notes and slides for this message, visit our website, riverinthehills.com. If you would like to partner with us in moving God's heart and changing the world, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend.